A question asked courageously, answered honestly, and lived authentically can change your whole life. For me, that question was, how can I use what I have, what I love, and what I know to bless the lives of others? The School for Good Living and this podcast are one answer to that question. Hi, I'm Brian Miller. I know that the world can work for everyone, but that it won't until it works for you. I've created this to help you make the difference you were born to make. It's a series of conversations with thought leaders who are moving humanity forward. And in each episode, I explore their lives and the work they do. I also ask them to break down how they've gotten their books written, published, and read. This podcast is all about exploring the magic and mystery, and sometimes the misery, of the creative process. So if you have a mission, a message, and the motivation to share it, this podcast is for you. Welcome to the School for Good Living. My guest today is author Nick Egan. Nick has written a book called Shift, The Art of Transforming Limitations. Nick is a speaker who encourages organizational and personal growth using his understanding of positive psychology and Buddhist philosophy. Nick has given a TEDx talk called Where is Nirvana? He's an award-winning leader and executive coach. He has taught meditation techniques for more than a decade and regularly leads expeditions to destinations including Bhutan, Mongolia, Nepal, Thailand, and Tibet. You know, some of the world's most exotic and exciting locations. Nick has a bachelor's in psychology and a master's in comparative religion and a PhD in Buddhist philosophy, but he's also a no-nonsense coach who spent years practicing martial arts, studied organizational behavior at Harvard, comes from a family of successful entrepreneurs, and he has a deep background in social and emotional learning, as well as healthy relationships and ethical decision-making. In this conversation, we explore the fact that each of us, to some degree, become the prisoner of our own perspectives. And we talk about, Nick shares, how we can liberate ourselves from that. You know, just that. A big part of this is becoming more aware of the stories we live, something Nick talks about. And I love the thing he says, that every story stops working for us one day. In this conversation, Nick walks us through a practice with a pencil that can help us see how easy it can be to transform our limitations. Kind of a fun party trick. And he also offers us a perspective to help us see people that we currently view as adversaries or situations that we might view as full of adversity and how to transform our experience of those right along the lines of everything I've just been saying. I know it sounds nice. I know it can sound easy, but I press Nick to tell me how can we do that? And I think he gives some pretty good answers. I also love his view of the mind and emotions, how we can use our minds to diminish the adverse impact of disempowering emotions. And again, something that can sound great in theory, but Nick shares some principles and practices that are eminently useful. So you can learn more about Nick at nickegan.com or of course, by listening to this conversation. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you enjoy. Nick, welcome to the School for Good Living. Thanks, Brian. Great to be here. Please tell me, what's life about? Oh, that's a great question. I think to some degree, life is about the meaning that you give it. But from a more objective perspective, um, I really think life is about discovering who we truly are, which is interconnected, infinitely divine, if I could use those terms. And... A, a part of this amazing thing called the universe at a deep, deep level in a way that I think we don't often realize. Why do you think that is that we don't often realize it? Yeah, that's, that's important. And I think lots of spiritual traditions have tried to come up with answers to that, the why, 
um, my tradition. So I've come out of the Tibetan Buddhist tradition and they, they're a little bit agnostic around that question. You know, it's sort of like, like Buddha himself said, you know, if you're shot with an arrow in the eye on the battlefield, you don't ask like who shot the arrow, what kind of arrow it was, who, you know, who made the arrow in the first place. You just get the damn arrow out of your eye. And there's like that, there's a sort of a call to action in, in discovering it. So I don't know why we don't, we don't know why we're not just born knowing it. It's a good, it's a, it's one for the ages. Yeah. You know, I, um, I'm not a deep student of Buddhism, but I'd consider myself a Buddhist. (laughs) And, uh, I actually just got back. I was so thrilled to learn that you've led journeys to Tibet and Nepal Mm -hmm. and other places in Asia. I just got back from my very first trip to Tibet less than hours ago. Wow. Well, welcome back. That's yeah, fantastic. Thank you. I yeah. brought my obligatory Tibetan turquoise. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, that's pretty cool. So I want to ask you about that um, in just a moment. But before I do, before we get too deep into this, mm-hmm. let me ask you, when people ask you who you are or what you do, and I realize that'll change depending on who asks and where are you and that kind of thing. But how do you typically answer that question or how do you like to answer that question? The broadest way I like to answer it is I'm a coach in a, in a professional sense. Um, and depending on who I'm talking to, I might be an executive coach or a business coach, which is most of what I do, but I like to leave it as broad as possible. I'm a coach. And if people ask what that is, it's somebody that helps facilitate um, deeper understanding of oneself and further achievement of whatever dream that we're holding. Beautiful. Yeah, I myself, I'm very, very fond of coaching. And although I have a philosophy that, you know, from one perspective, I don't think we need anything mm-hmm. that I think many people, maybe everyone could benefit from having a coach. So. Yeah, no, I'm, I completely agree. And it's funny, um, Buddhism has a great rubric to understand a little bit about what you just said. It's, it's the dichotomy of the relative and the ultimate. Right? So it's like this idea that on a relative level, meaning, and I don't mean levels of like different dimensions. I just mean understanding things from relation to other things. Uh-huh. Um, we can all use a coach. Absolutely. But at the ultimate level, I mean, we're all perfect as we are. And it's just a matter of realizing that very deeply. Yeah. I think that's just a much more empowering way to live than, you know, I'm flawed. Life is screwed up. This world sucks. People are jerks, you know, that kind of thing. Um, And I imagine that that's a perspective that, I don't know, maybe you've had. I think some people tend to, I don't know, kind of be born with that worldview, it it almost seems to me. And and part of why I say that is I really love um, in your book, In Shift, when you talk about early on in the book, which is appropriate, you're talking about your early life, that you, instead of watching Saturday morning cartoons, You'd watch Saturday morning what? Yeah, it was uh, Sunday morning gospel shows. <laughs> and <laughs> and I, I, I'm born and raised in Northern California, and I did not come from a religious family per se. Spiritual, definitely, but not religious. And so I'd wake up and, and watch these, you know, fire and brimstone type of, type of shows. I mean, back then there weren't that many channels to choose from, but I, I was enthralled. And early, early on, I mean, I mean, even from the time I was five and six years old, I was interested in 
broadly religion, but I would say more specifically the mystical traditions, um, traditions of understanding ourselves and understanding our mind very deeply. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so that, that really appealed to me. So people that had a claim to a spiritual understanding were, um, always very attractive to me in terms of just learning more, um, from really early on. And so I, I learned to start meditating, taught, self-taught, you know, even before I was a teenager. And then as soon as I could drive, I started taking classes in Zen and a couple other traditions. What was it about Zen that appealed to you? I'll tell you, honestly, I'll tell you. So by the time I was 16, um, I had accumulated a fair amount of knowledge, um, just reading any book that I could get my hands on. I mean, I went through the library, I would order books, I would go to the bookstore, things like that. There was, the internet didn't exist at the time. Um, and so I had a couple of qu- things that I thought were qualifiers for traditions that really would appeal to me and that I would you know, commit to training some time. And the first was that it had a philosophy that I could understand. Um, and I didn't need to understand it thoroughly, but just like that it made sense. And there weren't these like glaring errors in thinking at the time and my teenage brain, um, would pick up. And then the other was that there seemed to whoever the teacher was, there seemed to be an insight or an energy that they had that I could relate to at a real palpable level. Mm -hmm. And it's funny because early on I was very attracted to Taoism. I still am. And I was doing some Taoist energetic practices, moving energy and Qigong and Tai Chi and that sort of thing. And I met some great teachers who could do cool stuff with energy. And I think, you know, had some level of realization, but at, at the time I didn't, it didn't ring my bell in terms of having this kind of ultimate realization until I met teachers in the Zen tradition. Do you mind if I just jump in there and ask yeah, you, please. because this is something I'm so fascinated by with a little bit of exposure I've had to some of these disciplines, Qigong mm-hmm. and Tai Chi and, you know, and others and energy work and things like that. What were some of the kinds of things that you were able to see some of these practitioners do? Like, what did you witness? Oh yeah. I mean, <laughs> we could talk about that. That's going to take us down an interesting rabbit hole. Um, I mean, it was very common. I, I knew I had a couple of teachers that could really, their hands would become so hot just to the touch. I mean, there would just be no denying that there was something going on. And then I think most people, if they were to project energy toward you, you could feel something. Um, and I, and I certainly always came with a skeptical mind. So sort of a scientific mind frame yeah, and like I, any good Westerner. Exactly. Exactly. Like what prove this, you know, yeah. prove it. And yeah, there was just no question in my mind that they could project energy and do these things. And I had, I had one teacher actually, he was involved in kind of modern Raja yoga, which trained specifically to Raja yoga, Raja means King in Sanskrit and yoga is just union. And so it, this tradition was like specifically training to have a certain level of clairvoyance. And boy, I mean, I remember times just sitting and having tea with this guy. He was a Westerner. And he could literally tell me things that were about to happen like on the street. And I, I've never, I've actually never seen anybody have that level before. Now, I mean, I left because the guy actually was not, I'll just say he was not the most balanced human being. Yeah. And I, you know, I found myself thinking, well, is that, is that really what I want to become? And I think the answer was no. And so I, I shifted gears a little bit. Yeah. You know, I've, I've observed that people that excel in any domain seem to be imbalanced because they've put so much into their pursuit of whatever it is, you know, success in business or even people who are, you know, like fit, you know, they maybe go a little bit overboard in pursuit of something. So anyway, I, I appreciate you 
you know, just indulging my curiosity on that um, because I myself have seen a few things in some of my time, you know, in different workshops or programs or around people. And it's like, wait, did I really just see that? Or like, how much of this is the mind and like all that? So anyways, really curious about that. But then you talk about one of the things that appealed to you about Zen was that it was, these weren't exactly the words you use, but that it was comprehensible, Mm -hmm. right? That it was cohesive and this kind of thing. But my experience is it's barely, I mean, if it is that, right, it's, Mm -hmm. it's barely that. Um, And obviously you didn't stay exactly in that one vein of Zen and never move off that. But tell me, how did your kind of spiritual inquiry or your learning journey continue or how did it evolve from that time when you were a teenager? Yeah, I got to tell you, um, it's funny being um, pickled in the Tibetan tradition for so long, you know, 20 plus years. Now I feel like I can go back to Zen if I, if I were so inclined and, and understand it in a different way. So it's, it's funny how one tradition can, if you understand one tradition deeply, it can give you the foundation to understand another, I think, well, at least within one spiritual teaching. Um, so I started, so I had these great experiences at, at the Zen center and I was training there pretty, pretty frequently and regularly, um, as much as I could up until I was a very, a young adult. And I, I had a couple of experiences where it wasn't the teacher himself, but it was some of the students were very anti, um, I would say philosophical learning. So like within Zen, there's this, there's a tradition that it's the, it's the wisdom that's passed on beyond the sutras, which are the written works of the Buddha Mm -hmm. and which were originally spoken. And there, that came to be translated, I think to many Westerners as like, well, we don't need to understand kind of the tradition or the context or the philosophy. And that, that sort of went against my own internal compass. And I think it works for a lot of people, but I was like, no, that's, that's not it. And at the same time, because I had a a pretty, I wouldn't say deep, a pretty, let's call it um, intermediate practice of, of energy. Mm-hmm. Um, I also found that very much lacking. And so I thought, well, you know, they're not really, they don't really understand energy, at least the, the lineage that I was practicing. In. And so I thought that Zen had, I mean, excuse me, Tibetan tradition had quite a bit more. And so I met a few teachers and went to a few teachings and over the course of a few years, slowly migrated toward the Tibetan tradition. Why did you write this book? Like, why did the world need this book and, or why did you want the world to have this book and what did you hope it would do for its readers? Yeah. So in my life, I found myself being, um, I would say less of a spiritual teacher and almost a translator of these ancient psychological technologies for modern people. Mm-hmm. Like very, very, very few of you know, people that I work closely with are considering themselves Buddhist or even spiritual per se. Mm-hmm. But I find that they all can value and understand ways to work with their mind and with their emotions sure. um, at a deeper level. And people have an inkling, at least, that there's something more uh, to the world to experience than just the, what we normally walk around with in the day to day. And so my hope with the book was not to add to another Buddhist book. So I I know that I use a lot of Buddhist terminology. I use a lot of Tibetan stories, but actually I would never classify it as like a Dharma book as a Buddhist book. It really is, you know, it's a, it's a positive development book, a, a, even a positive psychology book um, that happens to use some Buddhist frameworks for that. Right on. Yeah. And, um, 
I love some of the stories that you tell. And I love that it's a mixture between, you know, some of these. And I was an Asian studies major. I was an, an English major and Asian studies major. And I love, you know, some of these um, Asian stories that you share. And I want to ask you about um, one, but not just those, the ones that you share from your own experience as well. Mm-hmm. Like the one in particular, well, I was asking you about the cover. Let me go back to that. So you've got a couple of tigers on the cover yeah. of your book. Why did you go with that image? Yeah, that's a funny story, actually. I, <laughs> I was talking with the publisher about um, potential cover art. And she was saying, well, we could do this or that. And, that, you know, no, nothing was terribly exciting. And I said, you know what we need is something like this. And I said, of course, not that. We don't yeah. need the tigers. Like, I don't want that. But it should be <laughs> something kind of like that. And so she, of course, with a graphic designer, they worked up this thing and I, and I kind of fell in love with it. But the tiger in the Tibetan tradition, really all of Buddhism has a really deep meaning. I, I talk about it just a tiny bit in the book. Um, but it, to just put it in a nutshell, it's about fearlessness. Hmm. And one of the person that, um, the master, I guess, that brought Buddhism to Tibet, Padmasambhava, sometimes known as Guru Rinpoche, the, the precious teacher um, in the 8th century. He came from India, actually northern uh, India, what's now Swat Valley in Pakistan. And one of the stories has him transforming into this kind of fierce representation surrounded by fire. And he's riding a pregnant tigress, which is like, which is the most unpredictable kind of tiger. Yeah. Like don't screw with that tiger. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And so it represents, you know, if we truly understand our own minds, our own hearts, then there really is no fear to be had. So it represents a kind of fearlessness. And that's what I'm trying to impart in a lot of the book that we have agency or control over some of this. I I think that's really beautiful. I loved um, when you talked about that. And and in the fearlessness, you know, as well, I I really appreciate that you ask, you know, you, you ask some really difficult questions or you invite the reader to ask themselves some really difficult questions. And you talk about the fact that we can become prisoners of our own perspective mm-hmm. and that, and you say many people are trapped in their experience through the telling of their story. Mm-hmm. Will you say more about what you mean by that? What do you mean by becoming a prisoner of your own perspective? Yeah, it, it's similar to what you were talking about earlier when people, some people are born with an intuition that there is more to life and that we are all kind of inherently divine and interconnected and use different languaging around that. But I think for the most part, even even those that do have that very strong intuition um, or even uh, some experience with that insight, there's still a natural narrative that bubbles up to the surface. So, we, I mean, just very simply, we can talk about it in, in a couple of ways. One, we either really like stuff that's going on or we don't like stuff that's going on. Or sometimes we're kind of ambivalent about it. We're neutral about it. And so that's the three within... Within Buddhist teachings, those are kind of the three primal urges that we have all the time. And then we make a big story about the stuff we like and try to try to get more of that and try to become more of that. And then we make up a story about things that we don't like and try to go away from that and, you know, cast dispersions upon the shadow and and all of that. When in reality, one way to think about it is we're just we're watching a, a film, right? So it's this film that we're watching. And at one level, yes, we see, you know, Brad and Angelina and they're up there on the, on the film, um, in the movies and we're getting caught up in it and they're just actors 
but on a deep, deep level, it's actually just light, right? So whether it's a horror movie or this beautiful romantic comedy, whatever it is, whatever we like, you know, and by the way, some people like the horror, other people hate the romantic comedy. So that, that in and of itself is subjective too. Um, but at, at the end of the day, it's all just light. And the stories that we create about that in ourselves as a part of that movie create the habitual patterns, the karma, as it were, to just keep us stuck in whatever rut we've always been in. That was a distinction that really changed my life when I learned uh, this concept of stories. And I realized when people talk about this, sometimes there's this pejorative sense that can come in. Like, oh, you know, you're just stuck inside a story or something like that. But they work both ways, right? I mean, it can be empowering. It can be disempowering. And ultimately, every one of them has a purpose. Every story we tell ourselves from something as simple as, you know, I'm a father, Mm -hmm. which doesn't seem like a story when I can go, well, no, there's my kids right there. See, I'm a father. It's true. Right. Right. You make what I thought was a really powerful statement when you say every story stops working one day. Yeah. No, that's exactly it. And I, and I think your earlier point is well taken. Um, people do come out with these, the pejorative of, oh, that's just a story, right? Mm-hmm. Actually, our entire lives from one perspective are, are stories. And there's, not any, there's nothing wrong with that. It's just empowering once we realize that. Mm-hmm. And what that does is it does a couple of things. One, it allows us to choose a story that maybe is going to take us to where we want to go, whether that's mm-hmm. the next level professionally or in a different way, different understanding with our relationship, whatever it is. Um, and then at a deep, deep level, which is where you get into some of the mysticism aspect and, the, and Zen in particular is quite good at this, going beyond story. And that's a different kind of teaching, right? So that's going really to the heart of, in Zen, they sometimes call non-being or emptiness or things like that. Um, and that can be incredibly powerful and incredibly um, invigorating and go, goes beyond words. But the first step is just realizing that these narratives are existing all the time. And where are they coming from? They're coming in t- from ourselves. Mm-hmm. And if that's the case, then we can choose what we want to do with that information. Yeah, which is powerful. Nexus IT helps companies of all sizes manage their information technology with hyper-responsive, white-glove IT support and services to handle the most basic tasks, like monitoring and maintenance, to the more complex projects like digital transformation. Visit their website at nexusitc.net. And you talk about, you know, that we can obviously, you know, we can change our stories, we can transform our relationship, you know, to those circumstances or situations merely by changing the narrative that we're telling, not even necessarily by changing anything in the external reality. Mm -hmm. And one of the examples you use, I'd never heard before that I I actually thought was really cool was when you started to talk about the uses of a pencil. Mm -hmm. But will you talk about, you know, why did you include that? And how does that open up an understanding for you know, somebody who's listening that could be useful in maybe loosening the grip that some of these stories we have or the attachment to the perspectives or or positions that we hold. Yeah. I mean, I love using, using examples from everyday life as much as possible um, because it, it in some ways asks the listener to be shocked a little Mm -hmm. bit. Right. I mean, it's, it's one thing, sure. We can go to Tibet, we can go to Bhutan and 
go hiking through the mountains and you can get a sense of the spiritual and the grandeur there. But like, let's talk about this thing that's in my hand, this little pencil Mm -hmm. or a teacup I sometimes use, and then talk about all of the, all of the causes and conditions that went into creating that pencil. Right. So the, the person that even invented the idea of the pencil and his parents and his parents before them and all that and the wood and the, the entire lineage of that tree from what going back, who knows how many hundreds of thousands of years, not to mention the sun and the nutrients in the soil and the water and all of that. But then you can talk about the utilitarian aspects of a pencil, right? So it's like, okay. Yeah. And by the way, if I, if I may just jump in right there for a moment, Please. and because there's these two aspects uh, to this in my thinking, the one that you're talking about, about all the causes and conditions, everything that had to happen for this pencil to even exist, this mundane tool, it's probably, you know, sat on our desk without us even thinking about it. It came in a 12 pack from office depot or whatever. And then all of a sudden, when you just start being present and aware to the magic that mm-hmm. is there and everything that had to happen for it to be in that place at that time with you as the observer and all that. I don't know about you, but my, what seems to come up for me just spontaneously right there. I mean, awe and wonder are there for sure, but gratitude mm-hmm. is like, holy crap. I mean, that is amazing. What, yeah. what, what about you? No, I completely agree. My, my mentor in graduate school had a beautiful way of saying this. And he said that everything is the breaking wave of the totality of the universe Hmm. at at any given time. Right. So it's like the totality of the universe. It's like cresting right there in every little thing. And then, and then if you could turn that realization inward to yourself, then you have a sense of what it means to kind of go beyond the small self. Um, That's beautiful. That's a beautiful description. So there's, so there's that all of this, the lineage and everything that had to happen for it to be here in this moment. And then you've got it and you're asking yourself, okay, beyond merely being a writing implement, what else could this be or do? Then what? Exactly. Well, that's the thing. I mean, if you give that to a kindergartner and ask them, you know, to come up with a hundred different uses of it, they're going to come up with all these divergent ideas that, that might be effective or might not, right? We can use it as a paperweight. We can use it as a weapon. Um, we could use it as an art decoration. I mean, there, there's tons of different uses for that. And then you can make up stories about that's even just the utilitarian piece. Then it's like, well, do I like that or not? <laughs> right? right. So like, let's use that as a paperweight. Oh, it doesn't work as a paperweight. I think this is a stupid idea. And now I have a story about this whole exercise. Yeah. Right. So that that's getting into it. So it's like, number one, we've, highly, highly shrunk down what the actuality of that quote unquote pencil is, but for good reason too, right? I mean, you don't, if you're sitting around like the dinner table with a bunch of Buddhists, you don't say, pass me the cresting wave of the totality of the universe. Like, <laughs> which one, you know, it's like, well, they maybe, all are. Maybe they say that to each other when we're not there though. I don't know. <laughs> maybe that's the secret, the secret meetings. Yeah, yeah, it's possible. Um, no, but there has to be some kind of relative distinction between things. And so that's where we get into the shorthand of like pencil. Right. Yeah. And then, and then it's understanding that our, the story about our experience of that pencil that's where we really have the freedom. I mean, that's even like a low level of, of freedom and understanding, right? Not, you don't even need to get into the mystical side of things, but it's so, it's so powerful. You know, you talk also about the fact that obstacles are opportunities Mm -hmm. and you know, that's nice to say it's a pleasant thought, you know, this kind of thing. But what I'm wondering is how can we like, as a practical matter, the next time we run into something that is deeply disappointing or frustrating or angering or whatever, you know, maybe a colleague or maybe a spouse or 
you know, someone that we don't even know. Um, maybe somebody who's been elected to be president of the United States, you know, something, <laughs> something yeah. like that. How can we develop the perspective that obstacles are opportunities in a way that it goes beyond merely an intellectual understanding? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, a lot of my discussion around that came out of my study of the, of a work called the Bodhicharya Avatar, which gets translated as like the way of the Bodhisattva um, by this great master named Shanti Deva, divine peace. Actually, he was in India, um, I think for 1800 years ago, something like that. Um, and what he talked about was really thinking about people, what he called, you know, quote unquote enemies, which very few of us, I think today have enemies, but people that are wanting to do you harm, at least perceived to be. And his perspective, I mean, being classically trained Buddhist was like, look, if somebody's harming you, they're giving you the opportunity to practice this patience, which in, in Sanskrit, patience is much more active. Like in English, we say, oh, I'm just patiently waiting for the bus. No, it's more like this heroic kind of perseverance through difficulty. That's how patience gets translated. So tolerance, patience, that kind of thing. And by being patient and tolerant, of somebody trying to do us harm, it actually is the greatest blessing. And it's the thing that allows us to essentially free ourselves karmically of the burden of responding to anger with anger. Hmm. And that from that perspective, it's, it's actually quite rare. There aren't that many people that are walking around trying to do us harm. So number one, we have this really rare person. And number two, they're doing something that is like helping us if we're able to respond to it in in a real way. Um, now somebody might object and say, well, look, they're not, they don't know that they're trying to help us. And it's like, that, that actually doesn't matter at all because at the end of the day, they're harming themselves and they're helping us. And so we should actually just be so grateful to them because they're willing to sacrifice something of themselves for us, even without knowing it. So if you think about that, I've had a few teachers who would say things like, um, I mean, very, in a very real way, they would say, you know, when you see somebody that is annoying or an obstacle to you or challenging to you or you know really even somebody that's doing you harm mentally do a prostration to them like a full body bow that is very common in in tibet or at least a bow so you bow to the obstacle and just from that it's like if you have enough training you can use that as the space that you need to be able to reframe that in a way that i think is much more at least certainly more spiritually beneficial but i would argue psychologically and, and materially as well yeah, I, I think you're right. And and what comes up for me is, you know, the such a great title of Ryan Holiday's book about the obstacle is the way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. And some of this does seem to me to be to parallel very much the stoic philosophy and what Aurelius talked about with virtue and how these enemies are actually giving you the opportunity to exercise your virtue. Yeah, that it's funny. This is a I don't want to speak outside of something that I'm not expert in, but um one of my mentors, again, in grad school would say, you know, everybody was trading baseball cards and there's some evidence. There's actually a a school of legitimate historical thought that the Stoics in particular were influenced by Buddhist or perhaps Hindu thought at the time within Northern India. So there's this Bactrian, Bactria, which was in Northern, what's Afghanistan and parts of Northern India was that it was essentially a Greek outpost. And, you know, Alexander the Great came through and, and did all this. And so the gymnosophs, the quote, the naked, like it's translated as like naked philosophers, they were Hindu and possibly Buddhist um, philosophers that came back, you know, to, and brought that information back. And so there's a lot of evidence that points to, at the very least, the, they knew of Buddhist thought, if not um, were influenced by. 
Yeah. And that's one thing that I look at in our Western society today is how, you know, these were for many years, not, it's not a religion, you know, Buddhists thought it wasn't until my understanding is it wasn't until the last couple hundred years when, when religious scholars in the West started to kind of catalog and, and, um, you know, write down these ancient traditions that somehow Buddhism got classified as a religion where really it was just principles for living an effective life. Yeah, that's a, you definitely, I mean, you can certainly take that perspective and I think it's a correct perspective in many ways. And I, I think that when the modern West in, in came into the contact with Buddhism, it didn't really fit a lot of the categories, right? Um, just because there is no creator God as such. So then it's like, well, that calls into question this whole thing. Um, and then the philosophy and, and like you were saying, the, um, practical applications within what I think it's termed Buddhist psychology, um, mm -hmm. rightly or wrongly. And so that's certainly one way to think about it. But I think also the modern interpretation of religion is quite a bit skewed toward uh, what I would consider almost like a folk tradition, <laughs> like as a religious scholar within Buddhism, I, you know, yeah, absolutely. If I take you to Tibet or Nepal or anywhere, you know, and I talk to the average Tibetan guy off the street, they they are going to make be making some offerings, going to be trying to be a good person, things like that. They're not going to understand. They're not going to be versed, well versed in philosophy, or and certainly not mysticism per se. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I think that those parts of religion have always been a part of religion. It's just that Buddhism has emphasized them quite a bit as opposed to other religions emphasize different aspects. Yeah. And I tend to look at it and I think, you know, with again, my limited understanding of, of Buddhism is that if people understood these, and by the way, to go sideways on myself here for a minute about how much this thinking has influenced things like cognitive, cognitive behavioral therapy. Yeah. Right. This right. ability to stand outside yourself and observe and, you know, this kind of thing. And I, and I go, man, like, why don't we teach this stuff in grade school? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, to some degree, if you look at mindfulness, right. And social emotional learning and some of the work that's happened in C-Care out in Stanford, um, some really basic Buddhist practices are being taught in grade school, which is really interesting. I mean, Robert Thurman, you know, Uma Thurman's daddy is one of the, one of the premier Buddhist scholars in America. Um, he, he calls it the cool revolution and how Buddhism isn't, we're not, we're not sort of adopting or converting to Buddhism en masse, but instead it's like the concepts are slowly infiltrating. Yeah. I like to tease my scientific minded friends where it's like, they, they'll tell me something neurosciencey where it's like, Oh, it turns out, you know, neuroscience just bit, validated this Buddhist concept. And I'm like, yeah, you guys are so slow. Like we've been doing it for <laughs> 2,500 years, you know, now yeah. I'm sure, I'm sure science will catch up eventually. <laughs> I love that. So a little earlier, I asked you, or I mentioned, you know, part of what I love about shift is some of the stories that you include. And one of them that I just chuckled when I read was the one about um, a group you led to oh. Tibet and you for the most part, people were okay being, you know, out in, in the wild and sleeping in tents and things like that. But you had a couple from New York who weren't maybe as comfortable as the rest and they were frustrated with the zipper mm -hmm. on their tent. Will you share how that story, you know, what that story is and how it ended? Yeah. yeah. Um, so I'll be, so first that's, it's funny cause that's the one, that's the part of the book that I had the most people read 
prior to okay. publishing because I didn't want it to come across as condescending to the, to the people. And so I, I rewrote it so many times because I, I just, it's such, it's easy, I think, to, to point to the couple and say like, oh, you know, how foolish of them or whatever. But the, the point is we all do this all the time. And so the story goes that we were there and actually I was with my good friend and she, we were kind of co-leading the trip. And I think I was just talking to her a, a few months ago. I think it was originally her idea. Hmm. And so we were co-leading the trip and essentially they just would not let go of the zipper. It was just, it was just pulled a bit too tight. And so we were in very rural Tibet in, in calm. Um, the area in far, far Eastern Tibet. And we said, you know, see that village up there, you know, that uh, there was probably five out, 10 houses, maybe let's, we're going to take your zipper up there and get it fixed while you are all off, you know, doing trekking. And we, I had the, I had the, the porters, the guys that we were with, take it down. So I talked, was talking to them in Tibet and they just laid it down flat. And then once they came back, then we put it up and we said, Oh, it's, it's been fixed. And they were happy the rest of the trip. I mean, it was like, that was early on. I think that was four or five days in. And so there's another 10 full days and they were like, they would keep referencing it. Like, Oh, thank God we got that zipper problem taken care of. <laughs> like, yeah, I'm, I am. Thank God we did. Um, That's so great. Yeah. It, it's a little bit like the Dumbo analogy right? Yeah. It's, it's sort of like, what is it? What is it that gives us the power to be what we want to be? Is it the feather? or Is it coming from inside? And what's the, what's the bridge? You know, if we can't get there on our own power, then sometimes we need that talisman of the feather or fixing the zipper to be able to get to the next step. Yeah. Or the confidence, mm-hmm. faith, the support of a teacher, mm-hmm. mentor, a friend, a guru, you know, something yeah. like that. I like how you used confidence and faith in, in Tibetan, the word depa means both confidence and faith. You know, how does this word depa get used in Tibetan? Yeah, it's very similar to how we use, um, faith in, in English with a, with the caveat that there's an understanding, at least among the philosophical traditions in the practice traditions of Tibetan Buddhism, that faith, the lowest level of faith is blind faith. And they say that very clearly that the, you know, really real faith actually comes from experiencing. So practicing the teachings and then putting them into your own context for experience. And then, so, but then that, that begs the question, right? Is that then faith? And that's where I think you get a little bit of a shift from the English perspective, which is, you know, you'll hear people, especially I think from certain Christian traditions say, well, like faith means it's unknowable or in some ways like inexperienced, you can't experience it. Hey, thanks for tuning in to part one of my interview with Nick Egan. Please tune in again next time for part two. Despite living in an age where we have more comforts and conveniences than ever before, life isn't working for many people. Whether it's in the developed world, where we're dealing with depression, anxiety, addiction, divorce, jobs we hate, relationships that don't work, or people in the developing world who don't have access to clean water or sanitation or healthcare or education, or who live in conflict zones, there's a lot of people on the planet that life isn't working very well for. If you're one of those people, I invite you to connect with me at goodliving.com. I've created Life's Best Practices Breakthrough Coaching to help you navigate the transitions that we all go through. Whether you've just graduated school, you're going through a divorce, you just got married, you're headed into retirement, you're starting a business, you just lost your job, whatever it is you're facing, I've developed a 36-week course that you go through with me 
and a community of achievers and seekers who are committed to improving their own lives and the lives of others. So through this online program, you will have the opportunity to go deep into every area of your life, explore life's big questions, create answers for yourself in community, get clarity and accountability. If that's something you're interested to learn about, I invite you to contact me directly at brian at briamiller.com or by visiting goodliving.com.